Hey guys, this episode will feature the final play for the first season of Lights Up. We do have a wrap-up episode in the works that will drop sometime in mid-December, with new works from our featured playwrights and some of our actors. We want to invite all of our listeners the opportunity to submit their short play to be considered for Season 2, which will launch in February of 2021. The only stipulations we ask are that 1. They not be published, and 2. They are under 20 pages and length. Just email them to Lights up at Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga.com. That's theater with an R E, with the subject line Season 2 by December 16th. Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a desk. Lights up. A podcast by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. Lights up on a woman, Mistreen, at a table. She picks up a perfume bottle. She looks at it. She sprays a little on her wrist. She smells it. Lights change. A man, Hisham, enters as she rubs the scented wrist on her neck. He wraps his arms around her and nuzzles his nose close to her neck. He makes an appreciative noise as he takes in the scent. Mm, I have good taste. What's the occasion? Do I need a reason to give my wife a present? It's lovely. Citrus, lemon trees, and a picnic. Cool shapes. What else? What else does it remind you of? It's remind me. My husband is very thoughtful individual. Who usually buys me present? When he has bad news to tell me. I'm offended. We haven't been married long enough for me to be that predictable. I'm a little harder to read, surely. It's why I married you. You are an easy read. Like a cheap romance novel? <laughs> a kind you pick up at the airport? Okay, now you're just being insulting. I'm a lot more mysterious than that. If we're talking books, Compare me to a good mystery novel, at the very least. Men in trench coats under street lights, beautiful women spotted through upstairs windows. A mystery. <laughs> the kind where the woman comes to the private eye for help. She comes in wearing some beautiful scent he can't stop thinking about after she leaves. He takes the case for that reason alone. He wants to follow the scent, literally. He wants to keep breathing it in. Isn't there usually some unpleasant secret in mystery novels? What are you keeping from me? We don't want to take the analogy too far. Hisham. I'm more about the trench coats and the beautiful women. Just tell me, what's going on? Okay, now don't get upset. I knew it! No gnashing of teeth allowed. Nashing. What is it? Just remember the perfume bottle. She levels a look at him, urging him to spill. I'm going to help Hassan at the archaeological site. She looks at him, then moves away from him. You do want to play the hero. 
No, I would just like to do my job. A job is something you go to with a good idea. You will return from at the end of the day. You go in, say hi to your co-workers. You gossip about what you saw on TV the night before. Few hours of work and then you come home. All of which I plan to do. You are sure of that? War not with the standing? The bombs won't magically affect you? Because why? They affect others, not you? Your PhD in archaeology somehow protects you? The fighting hasn't reached the site yet. You are talking the words of our government paid mouthpieces who call themselves generalists. Now is the time to go before it gets really bad. Their thugs are already there kidnapping and killing people. Whole neighborhoods are gone. They are laying the groundwork for a full-scale assault. And before that assault rolls in, we need to rescue as many objects as we can. Rescue? You talk of it as some life-saving mission. These are scraps from another time you are going after. They are not worth losing your life over. It's our history, Nishreen, which I'm very proud of. Do I put down your study of poetry? I wouldn't risk my life over it. It's important enough for you to go all the way to London to study it. Is this what this is about? My going abroad to study? You're going to get back at me by going off to some war zone? It's not a war zone yet. Yet, in about two seconds. And you don't need actual tanks to call it war. In those two seconds, you can uncover a whole lot. Seriously? Is, that, is this about me pursuing my studies? That's the second insult today. Is it? I want you to go. I believe in your passion. Why can't you support mine? Because the only thing I might die from is boredom in class. If armed men were roaming the Hall of London University, picking off students, or bombs were falling on the King's Cross, no, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't subject you to that worry. I would study my poetry elsewhere. Like any sane person. You can pursue your passion where you want. Mine is pretty site specific. I have to be there. Nishreen, Hassan is uncovering amazing things already. An entire domestic dwelling intact, whole inscriptions. He's piecing together what life was like almost 3,000 years ago for ordinary people. This is too important to ignore. So wait until things calm down and then go. Nobody's going to cordon off that area and tell the combatants to kill themselves somewhere else. You know what really infuriates me about war? Apart from, you know, people getting killed who have no business dying so horribly and too soon, is that you realize there's no one at the steering wheel of this great big fuck up called war. I don't know why I expect there to be some kind of intelligence when everyone's going nuts, but I do. Then you realize, wait, there isn't because it's war, which means everyone's checked their brain at the door and what everyone seems to be doing at this point is just managing a catastrophe. Nishreen, we have to save what we can while we can. They won't get to rob us of our history. They may be fucking up our present and our future, but they don't get to destroy our heritage, our history. I wish Hassan had left the site buried, 
but now that it's visible, it'll be used to shoot from and fight around, which means firepower is going to target that area. Fine. You are going. I don't need to hear all your reasonable argument for doing what will still be a stupid thing to do. You're a poet. You have to understand. To step into another time, figure out what life was like for ordinary people, kings and queens live on. But do we get to resurrect lives like ours and be able to tell their stories again? I have a great job. I help bring back the dead. You don't need to be a poet to point out the irony there. There is a greater chance of you joining them than you bringing anyone back from the grave. I love the fact that you're going to study abroad. I admire you for pursuing what you love, the way you fought to get the visas, found a place to stay, how you've met every obstacle with an attitude of, that's not going to stop me. Between the war and family expectations, everything around you is telling you to shut up and hide. But you said, screw that. You sure I'm not running away? Getting out of the country where others can't? You're standing up for what you believe in and doing it when everything's going to hell, which is exactly the time to stand up for what you believe in. Silly little poems. Against all that. Especially during this time, each of those poems, writing them, studying them, each line, it's a glorious middle finger to those who would steal everything decent and good from us. They do everything they can to bury us in their savagery, Maybe we can't bring down the tyrants alone, but I won't be made to feel even more helpless by being turned away from what I love. This is how I resist, how we both do. You with your poetry, me with my, my ruins. There is a change in the lights. It's four months from now. I'm remembering you and I think I have lost you. What? Lights change, sound of an airport. Duty-free shop. Annabelle enters. She wears an outfit appropriate for her job as an airport salesperson. Hisham maintains his gaze on the screen for a second. Then he will exit. One of my favorites, Elysian. She picks up a perfume bottle and sprays a little on a stick of paper. Mm, it smells of all things summer, doesn't it? Picnics, cool shades, up perfect blend for hotter climates. You don't want something too clingy or musky, something light as linen for these summer months. Are you interested in purchasing a bottle, madam? What? Would you like me to wrap a bottle for you? I dropped mine when I first came. Dropped? I had a bottle of this perfume. When I first came to London, a present from my husband. It slipped out of my hand in the bathroom. Oh, I'm sorry. Lucky for you, we stock it. My whole flat smelled of it for weeks. You could smell it in the hallway. It made me laugh to think what others must have thought of me. Look at that foreign woman drowning herself in perfume. There's nothing wrong with walking around smelling nice. Not in my book. It was as if he were home. 
when I smell that? I would return to my flat and I would imagine he would come on a surprise visit. As if it was his cologne. Sorry? My husband? Oh, right. His present. My husband is an archaeologist. Oh, yes? He digs up ruins. He brings back the dead. That's the way he liked to think of it. That sounds exciting. I think he's been murdered. Lights change. I'm going to my lectures, Hisham. I'm so thrilled to be here to sit and listen to my professors talk about Edmund Spencer's and John Doan, Milton Dryden. I think I'm in heaven to spend my days studying such writers, to think of nothing but syntax and grammar, rhythm, meter, and genius. You were right. It is my kind of resistance. And when they speak of war, when it mentioned to relation of some of these writers, it feels unreal. As if there couldn't possibly be any violence associated with these great works. It's only a description of blood. A pool of words. Words is spilled, not real blood. It's only when I go home and smell your perfume that I remember and that pool of birds turned back into real blood. Listening to the news? Why didn't you come with me? I should have pleaded. If only so I wouldn't feel so damn guilty for now this wonderful moment of forgetting. Lights change. Madam, are you all right? Another light change. Hisham enters. Perhaps he appears a little dusty as if he's been digging. He carries a very small jar. Very faint sounds of war, gunfire and explosion will play at a couple of points as he speaks. Look at what we found. In my bones, I'm sure I know what it is. Even though Hassan says we can't jump to any conclusions, look at the attached photo. I'm pretty sure it's a jar that held a fragrance. Lilies are mentioned everywhere in the stone inscriptions. I wouldn't be surprised if the area had an ancient perfumery. I can almost smell the fragrance it held. I know that's totally my imagination, but we'll be able to run tests. Can you believe it if it's true? Hisham? Coming here has been so worth it. Where are you? You're not responding to my emails. Everything confirms this site was someone's home. I'm going crazy in a good way. Imagining the lives of the people who lived here. I'm terrified all this might be blown to pieces before we can collect everything and get an idea of who these people were. I feel like I'm at an operating table and I have just minutes left trying to save someone's life before the bombs fall on us. Hisham, can you hear me? Nishreen, how are you enjoying London? I can barely hear you. Faint sound of an explosion. What was that? It's nothing. That sounded like an explosion. Was that an explosion? Don't worry, the rebels here said we're safe. Nisham, I can't hear you. 
Hello? Hisham! Lights change. Spot back on the screen. Hisham, along with Annabelle, now as the woman Hisham describes, remain in the dark. The strangest thing is happening. I'm starting to see everything through your eyes. I walk the street of London and feel like an archaeologist. I see the whole of London like it's long been buried and I am recreating in my mind's eye. Everything feels like it's covered in ash. As if some terrible cataclysm has befallen in this city. And I do what you do. I try and bring the site back to life. Only I don't know what I'm trying to recover since it's all there right in front of me. Lights up on Hisham. Next to Annabelle. I hold this fragrance jar and imagine the woman who might have held it. Annabelle takes the jar from Hisham and does what he describes. London is turned to ash. Ash in the food I taste. Ash in my eyes. She pours out a little and rubs it on her wrists along her neck. <laughs> Don't get jealous, Nishreen, but I think I'm falling in love with this woman. She's a little old for me at over 2,000 years, but she's really firing up my imagination. I'm starting to look at everyone as if I'm seeing them before the cataclysm, before their life changed forever, the nightlife, the laughing, their ignorance of what is happening around the edge of their lives. How dare they talk of stupid stuff like music and movies when five hours away by plane the world is ending? Maybe she's getting ready for her lover. Her husband's been away too long and she's forced to find affection elsewhere. So of course I have to be her lover since I'm the one creating this scenario. You have robbed me of my pleasure, Hisham. You told me to go and throw myself into my poetry but I keep getting dragged back. You drag me back with worry. And all I'm tasting is the dirt you are sifting through. This isn't resistance anymore. I can't fight back the way we talked about. All I can think of is the war and no one is paying attention. Not even you, it seems. Our imagination is something else, isn't it? This little artifact, the way it's opened a whole new world for me. Where are you, Hisham? Stop what are you doing and find a way to reach me. I'm sending a letter with this English journalist. I want you to know I've never been more excited and you shouldn't worry. Last night I had the best dream. I think it's a reward for spending so much energy trying to imagine the lives of the people who lived here, especially this woman I keep seeing. I won't go into the whole dream in case you get jealous, but she started to speak to me as if this woman made a special trip to tell me her story she seemed so full of joy and wanted to speak of her life. But stupid gunfire woke me up. Hisham. What? Lights change that isolates Nisreen and Hisham. They speak directly to each other. Annabelle has exited. Where have you been? Where else would I be? I've been frantically trying to reach you, 
Your family has been frantically trying to reach you. You found me. How's London? You can't ask me how is London like. Nothing is matter. I am worried sick. I'm fine. Hassan's fine. We're doing great work. Did you get my letter? What letter? I sent you a letter with a journalist. Did you get any of my emails? Everything's down. Most of the computer guys in this town have joined the rebels. If you want your computer fix, you have to go to the front lines. Hassan's assistant went, but he had his computer clipped by enemy fire. The rebels were so mad, they said they'd fix it for free. I'm glad we're on the side of the tech guys here. I'm so angry with you right now. I could hit you. I'm sorry. How have you been? I'm telling you. Tell me about London. I'm not able to enjoy anything anymore. My joy lasted for about two minutes. I hate the fact that people walk around oblivious about our suffering. You can't blame them. Of course I can't. But I'm doing it anyway. Did you try their fish and chips yet? I don't want to talk about fish and chips. Did you go to Mark's and Spencer and get the prawn sandwich? Hisham. Okay, but remember to bring that cake back with you. The one with the pink squares and the marzipan. Does that mean I'm going to see you soon? God willing, just a little while longer. You could have all the cake and sandwich you want if you come to London. I'm sorry I'm putting you through this. I can't tell you what a relief it is to know you're safe out of the country. I know it's not fair that I can't do the same for you, but we've just scratched the surface. They've peeled off some fighters to protect the site, but it's only a matter of time before the fighting makes its way to the spot. Please don't get cocky just because the worst hasn't happened. I know it must be harder for you being anxious all the time. I think you like the attention. I do, but we're both where we need to be. More than ever, I believe we should spend what time we have doing what we love. And yes, also being with who we love. You, but I've spent too much of my life living with so much fear. I'm so mad that we've, that I've, allowed that to happen, that I've let these monsters have such power over me. And because I did, my first fight has to be with this terror that's made such a coward of me. I've, I have seen so much good in this town. People aren't scared anymore. You wouldn't believe the light in people's eyes now. They look at each other. I want to come to you. Didn't you hear what I said? You need to be doing what you love now more than ever. Write more poetry. Enjoy the hell out of London. Wait, how can I be touching you? Why would the laws of physics apply here? Here? Nisreen opens Hisham's jacket. She sees a large patch of blood on his shirt. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. That gunfire that woke me up, 
from my beautiful dream about the woman holding the perfume jar. It tore right through the wall where my bed was. I know that woman was trying to tell me something. Oh, I shall. Don't worry, it didn't hurt. It happened too quickly to hurt. Are you? I don't know what this is. Are, are you dead? Am I dreaming this? I'm not sure, to be honest. I am coming. Please don't do that. I'm getting on a plane and I'm coming to you. It's too dangerous now. Wait until the fighting has stopped. I'm coming to find you. Nishreen, don't. Wait. Lights change. Airport sounds. Hisham exits. Madam, are you all right? Would you like me to get someone from customer service? No. No, I'm fine. I have to go. Will you be taking a bottle with you? No. I can't stand that smell now. Nisreen exits. Annabelle looks at the perfume. She brings it to her nose and breathes in the fragrance. Lights change. Annabelle now speaks as the woman Hisham spoke of, the one who may have owned the fragrance jar. She drapes the scarf that was around her neck over her head. What I started to say to you before you woke up, what I wanted to tell you was simply, thank you. Thank you for being so passionate about wanting to find out about me. Who knew I would have an admirer after all this time? After I turned to dust. Everything passes, everything passed so quickly. Each moment swallowed by the next and the next. Life gone in a second. And here you are trying to piece it together. And more imagining the pieces and the links between your time and mine. The jar you found held lilies, Hisham, oils and herbs. I would make my own fragrances. I would sell them to all the travelers who passed through our city, Assyrians, Egyptians, Persians, Phoenicians, all the different tribes who passed through here. I sold these amazing fragrances to all those tired travelers. But then the wars came. So much bloodletting, such madness. I don't know what drives people to go over such cliffs in their souls. Hisham, don't stop digging. I'll tell you more the more you unearth. Hisham, please don't stop looking for me. Find me. Lights fade. Hey, everybody, it's Gary, the producer for Lights Up, Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga's new podcast for playwrights, performers, and patrons of theater. I wanted to see if you've heard about Anchor. Anchor, the platform that's hosting our podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor yet, well, I am happy to be the first to tell you about it. It is free. 
F-R-E-E. That's right, free. Um, there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your computer uh, or your phone. And Anchor will distribute the podcast that you create so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And you know what else? It doesn't cost you anything, but you can make money from your podcast and you don't even have to have a minimum listenership. That's right. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So do like we did. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's Anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R, or Anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R.fm to get started and create your podcast. All right, so we just listened to Picking Up the Scent, Beautifully Read. Um, our actors um, were Kashish Bajpi. She read the role of Nisreen. Um, Amir Andalib read the role of Hishem and Savvy Mazda read the role of Annabelle and I thought they did a wonderful job. Um, we are joined right now by the playwright Yusef El-Gwendi and um, I, we are just so excited to ask him some questions and get to know him a little bit. Yeah, hi. Thank you, thank you. Hi, thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for joining us and can you um, just tell everybody where you where you are now, where you grew up? and where your family is. Yeah, I was, um, I'm currently in Seattle, born in Egypt. We um, emigrated to London, England um, when I was three. So, uh, and I grew up there. I spent my formative years there. Um, I was 17, then I went and spent a year in Paris. I switched to the American system, uh, the American college. I went, to, I went from my boarding school, English boarding school to the American college in Paris. It was wonderful. I was suddenly, the campus was spread out uh, over this area in Paris and there were like bars uh, in between the various. So it was just great to go into the bars, you know, suddenly 17 year old in Paris. Did you ever and, get to class or did you just stop at the bar? You know, I got to most my classes, but you know, one of the reasons why I switched to the American system was I was in a class uh, and it was being held by this Jesuit. I'll get back to the question but it was being held by this uh, Jesuit priest. And during the intermission, it was, I think the, the subject was the, um, maybe I shouldn't give the details. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the subject was the, I think the philosophy of the Old Testament. And it was very nice. It was like during, uh, we take a break. It was a long class during break, the break. He, he had a little spread of wine and cheese. It was lovely. And, you know, this was a time when people could smoke and people would, you know, would just, smoking and drinking their wine, eating their cheese. And I remember one time he said, so does anyone smoke here? And I thought that was a strange question because people were smoking. And he, he went out and he, came and he brought out this bong and he just spread. Love the Jesuits, love the Jesuits. I, I just thought this is great. And he was just kind of <laughs> spreading, you know, hash and people were just like smoking. And I, and this was actually the first time I ever smoked it. And I was trying to look like I knew what I was doing smoking this bong, but I was thinking, this is wonderful. I love the American educational system. <laughs> Going from my staid, boring English boarding school to just having hash passed around, you know, the hashish passed around uh, the, uh, the class. It was, it was a wonderful introduction. Anyway, 
After Paris, I went and did my undergraduate degree in um, in uh, Cairo at the American University, in, uh, and I did that in English and comparative literature. I then applied to six acting schools uh, and one playwriting school. I thought, well, I, I, I really want to be an actor, but I, I guess I also write plays, so let me just, as a backup. And the six acting schools rejected me, and the only school that accepted me was Carnegie Mellon for playwriting. Oh, so wow. it's a good school, but it was plan B. So, and I just thought, oh crap, I'm about to, you know, um, really get deep into a craft I kind of like. I really want to be an actor and I suppose I'll do this. So I went into playwriting and um, stayed uh, at Carnegie Mellon for a couple of years. Then I went to San Francisco, worked at a couple of theaters, at the Magic Eureka Theater. Then I, my work permit was running out and I needed a, a green card. So I applied for a job at Duke University and I got the job at Duke University. How arbitrary the university is. It's, it's like when you want something, you can't get it. And when you don't want it, you get it. So the couple of the graduates programs, the PhD programs, they're not called PhD, it was something else. It was in dramatic, uh, you know, I, I applied for Yale uh, for dramaturgy and Stanford for uh, directing and playwriting with uh, combo. And, and the minute I didn't want, it's like I got Duke and that was my path to a green card, which I absolutely needed. The minute I accepted that, Stanford and Yale came back and said, well, we welcome, we'd love to have you. I got like tuition from Stanford. It was a great deal. I got a letter from Lloyd Richards here. And it's like, of course, because I no longer wanted it. I got it. Yeah, you have to kind of let it sometimes when you hold something too tightly, you have to be willing to let it come to you. Isn't that amazing? It is so weird. And I remember, I remember actually getting a, a call from Stanford and, and they were going, well, we're wondering why, since you're in San Francisco, why you didn't come down for, a, you know, interview. And I and by that time, I knew I was going to do okay. I said, well, you know, I've been kind of busy. They said, well, can we interview now, interview you now? And I said, sure. And I remember to this day, kind of packing while they were interviewing me. Like I was half paying attention and I was just going, yeah, yeah. And I was just kind of answering their questions and going, well, thank you very much. I said, sure. And I just kind of put the phone, didn't think about it. And they, and they wanted me. So annoying. It's like, I know when I want a theater to do a play of mine, I'm not going, that theater is not going to do my play. And it's going to end up being another theater. Weirdness, weirdness of life. Um, got my green card, uh, had to decide where to go after Duke. I, I spent seven years there. I didn't want to go to New York. I was, I, I enjoyed visiting, but I just didn't want to live there uh, for an extended period. Uh, I don't know why. Every time I get, went to New York, I always had arguments with total strangers for no reason. I just... I was just getting to these arguments and I was going, okay, can I do this on a daily basis? Maybe not. I don't People know. People think New Yorkers are rude. It's just that we're engaging. That, <laughs> that's what I finally understood. Actually, New York is actually quite friendly. That's the thing. That's what you've got to understand. They're actually being quite friendly. But, um, but you know, it's just, it was too stimulating for me. New York is just too stimulating. I need a quieter uh, it's like I, 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 my interior is New York. I don't need something outside of me to mirror what's going, the mayhem inside. So I was, I was either Chicago, Minneapolis, or Seattle. They had all good theater towns, good transportation systems because I don't drive. I thought, well, the weather in Minneapolis and Chicago could kill me. You know, I've heard about their winters. And um, 
I'd had enough of the humidity of uh, being in North Carolina. So I just kind of left Seattle and I ended up in Seattle. And I, was, I, I thought I'd just be there for a couple of years, 26 years later. Here I am. Are you uh, working with any particular theater companies? Are you still writing? Like what's, um, where are you in present life in Seattle with, with your theater work? Well, I'm, I'm, um, I've worked with a few theaters uh, in Seattle. I'm, um, I'm a core company member of a theater in Seattle called ACT, a contemporary theater. Oh, yeah. And uh, they have a core company of uh, actors. And uh, a couple of years ago, the artistic director, John Langs, invited me to come on board as their first playwright, their first core company playwright. And so I'm associated with them. Um, I'm also sort of tangentially associated with another theater here in, um, in the Northwest Artists Repertory Theater in uh, Portland. And, you know, I'm, and, and I'm associated, I'm associate, uh, associate, associate artist, if I, is that the term, um, with a theater, small theater in um, San Francisco called Golden, Golden Threat Productions. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a working playwright. I, I, you know, I always say playwrights are, um, most people in, most people in the theater, actors, uh, directors, stage managers, designers, we're all, we're all door-to-door salesmen. We're all knocking on doors. You know, we don't have, we're not in a, you know, even if you're in your company, it's all tenuous and uh, you're with a company for a production, maybe a couple production, then you move on. Then you knock on another door and say, hey, let me in. I have a play. Um, and so it is, it's a constant hustle. You're knocking on doors. You're trying to get your work in front of uh, various people. I don't know what I could have been uh, apart from this. Uh, there was no there was no plan C. It was either actor or playwright. Um, I was going to be a filmmaker at one point in the, I actually, I, I did want to be, one thing I'm very thankful for because I also liked writing poetry and I, I'm very glad I'm not a poet. I always, I always think, God damn it, why did I choose playwriting? And I, then I think, well, it could be worse. I could be a, I could be a poet. I could be a professional poet. And, um, you know, it just, I feel, even though there's a lot of respect around poetry, it feels like even more of a niche. So, yeah, I mean, so that's, I mean, that's where I am. And yeah, it's the constant, uh, constant struggle. Everybody, all of us uh, on this team, and I think anybody listening who is an artist can relate to that. It is, it is a lifelong pursuit. It is a lifelong journey. There's, there's no real you may hit pinnacles of certain levels, but you're never yeah. really done. There's no you know? arrival. Yeah, you're never you're, you're never really done. It is. A, you're right. It's it's you're as good as your last production, and I yeah. And every production, you know, with me, every production almost becomes a um, referendum on whether or not to continue. It's like I had a good run, and now it's I've it's it's I've run out. I've I've, I've whatever I had, it's gone, and I was just kind of you have to prove yourself all over again. But literally, it's just you know when you when you when something doesn't work and you just feel you feel awful because you think well my instincts were wrong and then you just doubt yourself when you sit down to write the next play and you think well how could I have been so wrong in the conception of the play and the execution of the play and there's no there's no nothing to solidify one's sense of achievement it's always it's always a reprieve it's always a relief when something works, when a play works, I always go, thank God it didn't suck. And um, and I feel good, you can write the next play. Wow. Well, how, how long ago did you write Picking Up the Scent and what was your inspiration for this piece? It's so beautifully written, it's a captivating story. 
Well, thank you. Thank you. I, um, I wrote this a few years ago. Um, I wrote this a few years ago, and I remember the, the actual prompt was a, I was, I don't know what website or where I read this, but it was some theater in England, and that's why it's set in England. Most of my plays actually are set either in uh, the US or in Egypt, but this one's set in England. And it's in an unnamed Middle Eastern country, which is supposed to be Syria and in England. That's the sort of the two places it jumps back. I read there was some theater in England that was looking, they put out a little uh, uh, request, uh, sort of write a play about this. Uh, it was about ancient ruins. And I forget the specifics. And it was very specific it's about something about ancient ruins and sort of lyrical and I remember reading it and just kind of shaking my head going, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, I, I sometimes just, sometimes be a bit much, the, the specifics. Uh, uh, but and as I read it and I just kind of rolled my eyes and said, never mind. And then that night I had a dream. In my dream, my agent said, oh, Yusuf, you could write this. And I don't know if the idea for the play popped up in the dream, but I specifically remember my agent going, Yusuf, just write it. You can write this. It's so easy. Next morning I got up and started writing. Oh my God, I love that. Because I had dismissed it. I hadn't, I just gone. And um, yeah, and, I, and it's, it's, uh, it was performed at a couple of places. It wasn't, I did submit it to that uh, festival in Brighton. They didn't accept it. And, uh, but uh, a couple of theaters in, um, uh, uh, have performed it. And uh, so, yeah, I'm glad I wrote it. I wrote, I'm glad I ended up writing it. I, I reread it just and listened to it. And I was thinking, it's not bad, you know. Sometimes I reread something, I, 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 I will reread an old piece of mine and just cringe and just be very embarrassed that I had actually produced this thing. But I, I, this, was, this is okay. It doesn't, oh, no. it doesn't, it doesn't suck. That's it what doesn't I suck. <laughs> I mean, as Christy said, um, so when we got together, it's so well written, you know, and when we got together, because we were reading through a whole bunch of submissions to choose place for this inaugural season of this podcast we're doing that was my first response and I think I mean Christy and I are often saying the same thing at the same time <laughs> and we were both just just it was it's just so well written and perhaps it's because you have that love of poetry and you have that poet character but there's something very different from many of our other plays we've produced this season on the podcast about having real intellectually driven, but also passionate characters. There's something that just comes through that's, you can absorb it, you can listen to it, but it's it's meteor dialogue that I just really like kind of bathed myself in that I really, really loved. And, and now hearing that the inspiration was this prompt, um, which is interesting. I want to ask, do you feel like this theme of, of, fate of following your passion of right because we kind of have that in in picking up the scent there's this like we're gonna go we're gonna follow our passions there's this little bit of like kind of cosmic time jump in there is that something because you've experienced in your life that is it finds its way into your writing was that you know I mean yes I mean I think I do think I do think um that we end up on the path we're supposed to I mean it's almost kind of redundant to say this I mean we we, we walk the path we're supposed to walk but mm -hmm. I do believe in these undercurrents I, I I believe I believe in things like synchronicity and and bumping into people 
uh, uh, th there are too many things that have happened in my life where I go, that's odd encounter. That's that I would meet this person at the, here at this point. And I know scientists will say, well, the odds are blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there are too many things that have happened to me personally where I go, no, that's that's really odd. And I believe in the writing process. I do believe in the unconscious. I do believe in the the impulse that brings you to the to the writing table and starts you off. I mean, I am very, I mean, I try and show up. I, I don't wait for inspiration. I show up to my desk every day and I, and I truly, I do try to have a few things going because the worst thing is you're, well, the, it's both the best thing you're, you're about to end up, you're about to complete a play and you think, oh crap, what's next is the rewriting, of course. But I always want to have something to jump to after I finish something. So I always try and have something to look forward to, but I do believe in channeling. I do believe in just kind of in following your bliss as these characters do. I mean, you know, it ends tragically for one per, for one of them, but it's. But on the other hand, you know, he he uncovered something. I mean, he something was uncovered, and 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 he brought something to life. And and in a sense, you know, and I also believe that sometimes you're a vehicle for something else. I was partnered with somebody, and I thought that was it. And actually, I ended up introducing this person to the person they were supposed to be with. Okay, I guess I was just a bridge you know, for this, for this person to meet her life partner. I'm okay with that, you know, and I know she would not have met this other person and she's been with him now for, I don't know, 20, uh, 20 years, you know, so I believe in these, you follow something like my passion for acting is, um, it all fed into my playwriting without that, that passion um, because I am very wordy. I am very, I can get a bit uh, cerebral in my plays. And I think having been an actor, I try and make sure those, the word, those words are coming out of a real character, that they're embodied in a, in, a, in a flesh and blood character with needs and wants, and it's all very visceral. And I think experiencing the theater as an actor initially helps me as a playwright. So in following my bliss as an actor, it actually all fed into uh, my playwriting. I think if I had gone straight from my love of literature and straight into writing play, straight into, if there had been no acting, I think my plays would have been just very, yeah, just too cerebral. I love to hear how the playwrights are bringing themselves to a story, especially with, you know, multiple characters. That's, that's really what I, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. It's, it's like when I, by the time I'm writing, there's something inside going, write me. There are these personas, these voices and going, write me, write me. And so at my best, I don't, I don't, I don't want it to sound too woo-woo, but I am kind of channeling voices. There's the craftsman in me going, and if you do it long enough, you know, hopefully you've worked on your craft. There's the craftsman going, all right, this beat is too long, move it. You know, is this speech, can I, it's like, no, go ahead. I mean, there's the craftsman in me uh, sort of overseeing the process, but I'm really, in that very first draft, I'm really just trying to channel the voices, you know, get out of the way. Then in the second, third and subsequent drafts, then I'm putting on my critic's hat, then I'm putting on my dramaturg's hat and going, okay, now let's really craft this piece into a, a stageable version, you know, into, into the best version it can be. But in that initial draft, it's really, it's like I'm trying to be where the actors are on opening night. And so weirdly as a playwright, I am assuming somewhere in my unconscious, I have been doing all this work. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking about the part. I've been thinking about the characters. Uh, and sometimes I have not, have not there are on, on rare occasions, it's just, it'd be like a voice will, it's very insistent. And I just sit down and then it just, it's like an acorn. 
I just, I plant, it's planted and it just sprouts and I just go with it. And I learn about my characters as I go on. That for me is the, the best process. There are other playwrights like me. I mean, Tom Stoppard will talk about, you know, I think he, he prepares, he, I don't know if he still does that, but at one point he said, you know, I, he outlines, he, he, he breaks it down before he sits down and writes the play. Uh, uh, Pinter didn't, Pinter just kind of went with it. So everybody has a different process. I've, I've sometimes wished I was the kind of playwright who did outline and figure everything out because it would be so much easier. Let me ask you a specific question about process that, that maybe you can kind of outline. It, because in Picking Up the Scent, one of the things I really loved was your use of Annabelle's care. Um, because a lot of times, especially when you're writing short plays and, and it's great you know, producer aspect to keep the cast small, right? And we do doubling and things like that. But what I loved is that she serves the purpose in one way as, as the, the you know, duty-free shop, perfume shop woman. But she's also, you mentioned, you know, being a vessel. She's, that character and that actor is also a vessel for someone who has a very deep connection to our other two main characters who is transporting us through time. So I, what I'd love to hear, you know, you're, you were talking about um, you know, writing and just having that creative wave and writing that idea, but then also having parts of you that needs to go back in and edit and direct and, and dramaturg and um, what can you, and maybe you don't remember, or if you have any kind of inkling, what was that like when you were channeling through Annabelle and then realizing you, you had to use her, she was a foil in more than one way. What, how was that coming through? In the yeah, book? I think, I think, you know, usually within the first two or three pages of any play I write, I get a sense of where the play is going. Um, if there's something there. Sometimes it takes a little longer to figure out what the play, where the play is going. But I think within, within this play and uh, a lot of my plays within first, I'd say five pages with a short play, it's sooner. I know kind of roughly kind of where this thing might go. But then I'm surprised. I, I think I think I'm going here, and they go, "Oh, look at this!" And you know, I didn't know exactly when the breaks would be between the time shifts. That kind of where the characters were at each moment suggested the breaks. With Annabelle, she comes on, and I think when she first came on with the perfumes and trying to sell the perfume, I I already knew that she was the one. She's going to come on at the end. Yeah, she's going to come on at the end, and the woman who plays the saleswoman in the airport is just with a change of the headscarf, she's gonna end up being the, the woman that is being recreated uh, as Hishem is, is, is excavating that site. Endings are pretty important, finding the right button. And I think I had her in mind uh, pretty early on. But it was just very clear that, that both facets, both aspects of her personality had a purpose. It wasn't just the, the device. The we plot know, device. Yeah, it wasn't right. a plot device. It wasn't like, oh, well, I'll make her the woman in the airport so that later I can make her this. It was very clear that both were equally important. And that just, that just impressed. While I'm writing, I'm going, gosh, this is such a small part. Now I don't do this if it's not right, if I can't double. It's like I did, I did this with a, a recent play where I thought, oh, this character's gonna play this character. And actually thematically, it makes sense for this character to play. I wasn't just doubling because to cut costs um, but part of me is also going, that actor really doesn't have a lot to do. You know, if, if it was two separate actors for the uh, Annabelle and, the three, and um, 
and the character at the end. I can just imagine actors getting that the pages and going, well, where am I? You know, and go, <laughs> wait, I come on just at the end. And wait, I just have these two scenes. So I do like to, I, I am actually thinking it's, it's an actual thing I think about. And I'm going, am I enough? Have I given enough for this uh, actor to feel like, yeah, I want to do this. And you know, you do, you do think of, you do think of uh, things like, okay, the actor's supposed to exit here and then they're supposed to come on another costume. Have I given them enough time to change off, off stage? You know, those practical things, I think having been an actor and knowing some of those uh, logistics, I think it does inform the playwriting. One of the things Dana and I both really loved about this was the time travel aspect. And Dana, you've already talked about that. So do you tend to write in a non-linear fashion? Is that is that sort of your preferred storytelling? You know, I, I have, I was about to say, actually, I, I usually do a very linear. I mean, I guess it's it's a mix, it's a mix. Um, I'm, I'm actually, I, I kind of like the challenge. I used to like the challenge of um, the whole Aristotelian thing of one place, one set of time. I like this kind of challenge of, you know, lights up, lights down, and we see the whole play in one, in one setting and one, uh, you know, the, the time on stage is the time we experience. And I like that challenge too. And I've written plays like that. It depends on the play and the demands of the story. It was definitely so well written in terms of how the story was unfold, like unfolded for the audience. And um, in reading it, I would swear this was this was your chosen method because it was just so beautifully done. Yeah, I think it's riding that wave. I think it's just it's whatever that that thing you know. Oh, let's just write this, and just kind of have to trust the process. And when I am blocked, when I you know, sometimes I will have an idea and I'll go, okay, this is the way, this is the outline, this is the way. Uh, I mean, there was one play I remember going, oh, I've got it. On the fifth, by the fifth page, I went, I, I know the whole, this was a full length, I, I know the whole outline. And then I reached the scene that I was absolutely sure was part of the play. And I just choked. I thought, well, why can't I write this scene? This is so weird. And um, I kept trying to write it. I would walk away, I'd come back to it the next day, I'd come back to it two days later, and I still, and then finally, I just said, well, like, I, I don't know what's going on, and I worked on another play, and then I came back to it, and I reread what I'd written, I went, oh, I absolutely don't need the scene that I thought I needed, that it could be summarized in two lines, and since then, and actually a few experiences, I, I now, whenever I'm blocked, whenever I uh, reach a point where I thought, gosh, I thought I knew exactly where I, where I was going, I go, well, you know what? There's something much more interesting. There's a the much more interesting path to go. Your unconscious is working it out. Step away, work on something else or come back to it tomorrow or just rethink. And, and now I just go, don't panic. It's just your, there's something much more interesting than what you consciously came up with. What experience does provide is a toolbox for you. Like that, for instance, you go, okay, I'm blocked, like early me, the early player would go, well, I guess I thought there was a play, there's no play there. Let me just walk away from the whole project. Now I go, no, wait, just be patient and patience pays off. So I think it's just expanding your toolbox. If you do it enough times, you just have more resources to fix things. I love that. You said something earlier that I found interesting. You said you sit down to write every single day. Is that, is, are you specifically working on plays or, or do you do you do other works as well? Mostly plays. I mean, I do write short stories, you know. Um, uh, the thing about playwriting is that 
unless you're writing in a very stylized manner, you know, your vocabulary is limited. You are writing speech. You're right. You're trying to write the way people speak. And in my in my drafts, I'm actually I've heard another playwright speak about this, where you try and dumb it down a little bit. You you go, well, would would a person actually say this particular word? And you go, no. And I try and simplify. You're simplifying. You're simplifying. That's another way of polite way of saying it, dumbing it down. But you're trying to approximate speech. You're trying to approximate the way we speak, the stumbling, you know, obviously it's all crafted. It's all, it's not actually real life, but you are trying to approximate. Um, you know, I try, I write in a realist, semi-realist uh, manner. So occasionally I'll write short stories where suddenly I have access to all this language that I don't, I can't use in my plays, And it's just a wonderful kind of bathing in the rest of the English language. I do try and show up every day. I am writing, I do try and write but it's mostly plays. In two, three years, I'll write a short story. It's mostly plays. And I'll try and have a few things going because I just don't want to be in that place where I go, I, I, I'm what? What am I doing today? Because mm. when I'm not writing, when I'm not writing, you know, my anxiety level will increase. My, you know, I'll just start feeling crappy and I'll go, well, what's going on? I'll go, oh, I'm not creating anything. Mm. That's why I'm just feeling out of sorts and and uh, you know so I, I think I need my mind needs to be deep in something trying to create something extremely relatable I think we've all felt that as artists at one point or another but I think you know the pandemic really highlighted that for a lot of us I know I had some real serious bouts of depression and anxiety having that feeling and this podcast was kind of born out of that as well of like okay, the, the means with which we normally create has kind of been put on pause. What are, what are we going to do, right? And it was amazing how much better I felt and being able to connect and having something to look forward to. And so I think that's so relatable. And, and I want to thank you. Um, I'm so touched by that, actually. I'm like getting a little emotional. But thank you for sharing all of that and your passion and your process with us. Because I think everything that you said is just unbelievably relatable and I think anyone listening to our podcast um, playwright you know experienced beginning actor producer director can all listen and hear like don't give up keep going patience yeah. is key and and especially for my actors listening you know it's really easy for the ego to come in and to get the script and start developing this character and making choices and going, well, why does, why do we use that word? Or why do we do this? Or like, before you try to question it, know that the playwright has agonized <laughs> over yes. what word to use. There's something specific. So it's like, just, just a great reminder that it's our job when you are in that actor role to go in and, and be an archeologist and dig yes. and mine and become a voice for, for what that playwright had in their past. So so I just, I really enjoyed getting to speak with you and I, Christy is nodding and we're always on the same page as so I know she has as well, because just everything you said has been so wonderfully relatable and so inspiring, I think for, for theater makers across the board. So I think people are going to get so much out of, out of speaking, listening to you, you know? Well, thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for all that. And, um, uh, I appreciate that because we are all in our silos and we're all kind of struggling a little bit. And, um, and I love the fact that you do have this podcast and, and creating bridges and connections and, 
um, thank God for that in this time. So thank mm. you for what you're doing. To, to contribute a little bit to the landscape. It seems just, it seems like artists everywhere just need, need to know that the arts have pivoted. The arts have hope. They're still, they're still thriving. The soil just yeah. a little different than it was before, but it's still there. Yeah. Well, we'll keep going. We're, we're onwards. We'll keep going. What is your favorite word? Indispensable. What is your least favorite word? Uh, sorry. You know, I, I take that back. Sorry is not my least favorite word. I, I don't know why I said that. I don't have. I, 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 since I'm a writer, I, I, I want to embrace all words. There are no <laughs> least favorite words. I, I love them all. Okay. What is your favorite app? You know, I have I have this app called. Um, actually, I do like my podcast app, uh, but it's just I love it. There's also something called my Tuna Radio. Also, I have a white noise um, uh, app for when my neighbors start annoying me, and I need to just tune them out. What is your favorite or your most used emoji? You know, I don't use a lot of emojis, um, but I, I I do the thumbs up a whole lot. What is your favorite board game? Uh, I just saw. Um, the Queen's Gambit, which I loved. And I oh, used to play so chess. So oh my God. Christy, have you seen it? I haven't. You have to see it. Yeah, it's really good. Um, sweet or savory? Oh goodness. I, 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 I love food. I'm a foodie, so both. But um, I was just thinking I want a slice. I'm just, just today I was thinking I, I'm hankering for a slice of uh, pecan pie. So I'll, I'll go sweet. Window or aisle seat? Window. Dolphins or koalas? I like the furry, I like furry creatures. Um, I have to go with dolphins just because of their intelligence. Mm. But uh, I do, I do, koalas are a close second. They're very cute. They are cute. Dark chocolate or milk chocolate? Milk chocolate. I, I eat dark chocolate because it's supposed to be healthier, but I, I, I prefer milk chocolate. Summer or winter? Winter. All right, name a dessert you don't like. You know, I'm not a big fan of rhubarb pie. I, I've always wanted to like rhubarb. What is a superpower you wish you had? Um, I wouldn't mind being able to just like open a door and just like, I'm in Seattle, I open a door and I can just be in London. So like I, so I can, I'm in one place and I open a door and then I just, I'm in another place. What are three things you can't live without? I love pasta. So I eat pasta at least four times a day. Four times a day, sorry, I take that back. Four <laughs> really times a week. <laughs> okay, that would be the, I would have to check into some clinic, <laughs> some rehab, you know, pasta, you know, to, to win myself. Anonymous. Be yes, Betty pasta. Ford for pasta. <laughs> yes, Betty Ford for pasta. No, like three, four times a week, I'm going to have pasta. Things, you know, I love walking, and it's a good thing I love walking because I love pasta. And um, so the third thing, what could I and 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 work? So pasta, walking, and work. So if you had a tattoo, what and where would it be? Or if you do have tattoos, uh, tell us about them. I've, I swear to God, I've always wanted to have a tattoo, but I, for the life of me, I can't figure out what I would have. It, I mean, it would have to mean something. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, well, maybe something in Arabic, right? Something in Arabic, or what? What in Arabic? Or maybe it's something sort of, you know, from Egypt, the pyramid. I was like, why? Why would you tattoo a pyramid or the Sphinx or, you know? Or, so I've always wanted a tattoo, but I just can't think of what, what tattoo 
to, uh, to have. And I don't even know where to have it, you know. As the body, as the body ages, I go, well, what can I cover up? Maybe I can cover it up with a tattoo. Some big, huge tattoo, you know, on the side or something. So, yeah, I, I don't know. You are stuck on an island and you can pick one food to eat forever without getting tired of it. What food are you picking? English teas. You know, the little sandwiches, the little cut sandwiches, or, or pasta. I was, that, was the, that was the answer we both were expecting. Yes. What is a book or play that you think everyone should read? I love me like the curious incident of, what's that called? The Curious incident of the dog in the nighttime? Yes, I really like that. I love its play. I love its just, um, its structure, its visual imagination, its, its, its imagination. If your life were a song, what would the title be? Keep going. That's what it'd be called. It'd be called Keep Going. If you could master one instrument, what would it be? Piano. If you could live anywhere else in the world, where would you live? New York or London. I mean, I've, I've often regretted not being passionate about living in New York. What is your favorite way to rest or decompress? I'm fond of a glass of wine. If you could switch lives with someone else for a day, who would it be? I've always wanted to know what it's like to be some, you know, like another gender, for instance. So I've always, I've always wondered, what is it like being a woman? Mm. You know, I write all these female characters. And so I think I would like to spare, to be in the shoes of, uh, I just like to go through like a week. I don't think a day would suffice. I think I'd like maybe, maybe a few weeks as a woman, just inhabit their, 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 their worlds, their viewpoints, you know, how people approach them, how people view them, how that affects how they, you know, move through the world. Um, what's inspiring you in life right now? What's inspiring me is the fact that in spite of the pandemic, in spite of, you know, COVID devastating our profession, uh, basically stopping theater in its tracks, that we've managed find, to find ways to connect and to create. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? He was the Dean of Fine Arts and he said, and, he, and I know he was being facetious, but he said, Yusuf, quantity, not quality. And I know, I know he was joking, but what he was saying was, Yusuf, don't be precious. Mm. Don't be precious about your work. You practice your craft enough times. Uh, you, you expand the toolbox you have. I think he, he was obviously being facetious, but he was saying, don't be precious. Mm. What would you like to be remembered for? I'm hoping some of my stuff um, continues after I've passed. Describe yourself in a hashtag. I never use hashtags. So I, and I, and I, hashtag, um, what is a hashtag? Plays and pasta. Plays and pasta, yes. Mm -hmm. This week, we have two winners for Propped. They include Peter Dakutis and his play, Betty to Your Barney, and Thomas White and his play, Me and You. Lights up on Anna, who is putting on makeup. Alan enters, carrying a shovel. Here, you're putting on so much makeup, I thought you'd want to use this. Very funny, coming from a man who looks like Barney Rubble. Hey, I resent that. I am much more debonair. It's like Kevin James. <laughs> I'm almost done. Well, you're beautiful inside and out. You don't need all of that makeup. You want me to look nice, don't you? I don't know. 
You look so good, it's like you're planning to find a new husband and dump me. Don't be ridiculous. Let me put on some perfume and I'm ready. Anna sprays perfume on her neck and wrists. Now I know you're looking for another man. You know I'll always be Betty to your Barney. Betty was definitely more beautiful and sexier than Wilma. Kisses Anna on the neck and starts coughing silently. <coughs> <coughs> oh, I shouldn't have kissed you where you just sprayed. <laughs> oh yes, very debonair. <laughs> Lights fade. Lights up. A man and his husband are shopping for groceries. What's that sound? Somebody split a bag of cat litter on the bread aisle. And the guy that gets yogurt out of the back for us is scraping up the rubble with a plastic shovel. Rubble, rubble. Oh, do you want to go get a deli sub? No. Perfume lady is working. Oh, let's go around another aisle. Maybe somebody else will be there by then. I want a London broil sub. Uh, fine, we can get it. I'll just stand back, go get the macaroni salad and stuff. Oh, no, let's wait. I don't like how she squishes the bread when she cuts it. Yeah. A sandwich is a serious thing. <sighs> Do you need coffee? I don't think you should get roast beef. It's kind of raw. I'd do what I want. I'm getting the sub. With lettuce. <gasps> I'll go get the coffee. Ask them to heat it at least. Whatever. Be right back. At the deli counter a few minutes later. Ah! Got the coffee. Grinder girl said to wish you good luck. You getting a sub? Yes. Uh, same, except with the nine grain bread. Different cancer, different bread. <laughs> Rubble. 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 Lights fade. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theatre company located in southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight. And Casey Keelan as the associate producer. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the expressed written consent of the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ETC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. Or you can become a monthly subscriber on Patreon and get access to exclusive content. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast. Lights Up is hosted by Anchor, a Spotify company. The easiest way to make a podcast.